Stalk Talks podcast brings you intelligent discussion of topical issues inspired by the international city of peace and justice. I think we all know what we need to do. Problems, they come like a costume. They fit you. Remove our inner critic and open our inner, you know, curiosity. You know, nothing speaks louder than money. Walk in, slam your fist on the table, so... (laughs) Yeah. Together, <laughs> something has to change. Welcome back to another episode of Stalk Talks. I'm Zoe, and I'm Tom. This week on Stalk Talks, we focus on corporate responsibility. Are we entering a new era in which multinationals like Shell will be held directly responsible for climate change, and a global minimum corporate tax? will mean tax havens are less easily found. Now, both of these issues are relevant to the Netherlands, where earlier this month, a Dutch court handed down a historic ruling against the Royal Dutch Shell Company, stating that it must reduce its CO2 emissions by a net of 45% by 2030, regardless of the actions or policies of the Dutch government. And this climate ruling is the first ever worldwide to impose a clear and measurable emissions reduction target on a company and its value chain. Yes, I think this is really a very interesting case, Tom. And the verdict is based largely on international climate law in the form of soft law standards from the UN guiding principles on business and human rights and the OECD guidelines for multinational enterprises. It also links climate change directly to human rights. Now, Shell will appeal the decision and might even win, but a new standard has definitely been raised and a new precedent set. Indeed, corporations have also been coming under pressure with regards to the tax they pay, or apparently the tax they don't pay. In the last 50 years, corporate tax rates have dropped. Yes, dropped by 50%. But will this measure really prevent the so-called race to the bottom and ensure the equality that we seek? And to answer all of these questions, we would love to welcome Joseph Wild Ramming on our show today. Welcome, Joseph. Thank you very much for having me, Tom and Zoe. Now, Joseph is a senior researcher at the Center for Research on Multinational Corporations, also known as SOMO. Welcome to Stork Talks. Perhaps we can start with, with this idea that this, this recent judgment affirms that companies, to quote from one of your blogs, affirms that companies of all sizes at all times have an individual responsibility to prevent human rights violations and environmental damage in their operations and their entire value chain. A failure to do so can be considered an unlawful act. Now, this sounds really extensive. Can one realistically hold multinationals responsible for entire supply chains? Well, the court has obviously said yes, and this is something that in fact is is really not new in the world of corporate accountability. And you mentioned earlier the UN guiding principles on business and human rights and the OECD guidelines for multinational enterprises. These are two pieces of international soft law that have been around really for a decade now. And both of them are very clear that corporations have a responsibility to prevent negative impacts on people and the environment, not only in their own operations, not only in their own factories or at their own mines, but also in their entire value chain. 
The case is, though, that they, there is a difference in expectation of action for these different types of abuses in the supply chain versus in your own operations. You cannot expect a company to, do, to take the same action to prevent an impact in the supply chain as you can with their own operations, but you certainly can expect them. They have a duty of care, in fact. So you can expect them, and you should expect them, and the court here affirms that it does expect them to take all reasonable steps that they can to prevent that impact. And what you saw here is something that the, the court found that Shell did have this duty of care to prevent impacts, negative climate impacts, impacts on human rights, as you mentioned, Tom, from climate change throughout their value chain. And so that they have an obligation, in fact, to prevent those, those impacts. You see also in not just in the, the international normative standards, which are, again, sort of these soft law standards, which are starting to be translated into hard law. This, this idea, this principle does exist throughout other forms of the legal system. If you think about child labor, uh, there was a law passed in the Netherlands three years ago, in fact, that said that companies who sell products on the Dutch market that are made with child labor at any point in their supply chains, these companies have an obligation to prevent, to make sure that that child labor, that, that negative human rights impact is not happening. And if they cannot do that, if they cannot be sure that they are not using child labor in their supply chain, then they need to change their supply chain. They need to, to shift to another location or to another product that does not contain that, that child labor. So it is extensive in, in a sense. It, the, the scope is very broad. It's really designed to address the increasingly high and, and severe impacts that corporations are having around the world and to get at this idea of a shared responsibility for some of these negative impacts. It's not just the company right at the source that has a responsibility to address that impact but it's throughout the supply chain because there are many actors throughout the supply chain that are benefiting, that are profiting from that particular practice. Yeah, I, I think this is a, a really interesting point because they have that responsibility and the verdict stated that it's it's not an optional responsibility for companies. It applies everywhere, regardless of the local context. And it is not passive. They need to be proactive in this. But can judgments like these, can they overrule like local or national law? Well, I would say that they they cannot overrule national law. They and they should not. Um, but I would also argue that that is not necessarily what is is happening here. And these 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 soft law standards they basically say the first obligation of companies is to abide by the local legal context, the local law. But in many cases, these normative expectations, these internationally agreed standards for good behavior they in many cases go beyond the law, the national law. And so what they would say then is, yes, abide by the local law, but if these international standards, if this duty of care that you have from your home country, let's say from the Netherlands in this case, if that expects you to, to adhere to a higher standard, to do more than even the local context is requiring you to do, then you are in fact expected to abide by that higher standard. The higher standard, let's say these judgments, they shouldn't force a company to breach a national law. They, they cannot encourage companies to break national laws, but as long as the company can stay 
within the, the jurisdiction of the local legal context, they do have this higher standard, this higher expectation. And I think that's what the, the Shell case is particularly saying, is that regardless of the minimum standards that companies have to abide by in the different national jurisdictions where they operate, there exists a higher duty of care, a higher expectation. No, but I think that's a very fair point. And of course, that makes a lot of sense. But I think the key question that, that we have is that naturally, it may be easy to enforce local laws. And, and here you're saying, well, they have these additional responsibilities. Um, will these countries be responsible for enforcing these laws themselves? Or how do you see that working out? I think the way that it is it is intended to work, that what the, the Dutch uh, regulator, or let's say the Dutch judge, would in this case look to see if the company, Shell in this case, had executed that duty of care, determine whether or not Shell put the necessary effort, the necessary means, the necessary resources into doing what was considered reasonable in this case to prevent that impact. And so what the judge, let's say, in many of these cases may not do is go to the other country and say, well, this is This is the impact that happened on the ground. This is the human rights impact there. But they will really be looking at what happened in, in the Netherlands, sort of the decision-making processes and uh, the policies that are set up and the processes that are put into place within the Netherlands, within the, and see, was that sufficient? Was that adequate to address the risks that are there? Um, and that's what I think that they will really be looking at. And Obviously, there needs to be, uh, with, with civil liability, they will need to have this pathway to justice from a, a citizen or from a victim of a human rights abuse in a faraway country to be able to file a complaint, to alert the Dutch judge or to alert the Dutch, let's say, regulator that a particular impact has taken place. And then the judge or the regulator will start looking at whether or not this duty of care was fulfilled. So maybe it, just just for my own clarification, but how do you determine what is reasonable and what is not reasonable? Because I feel there, like that, that might be a tricky thing to determine where a company might say, yeah, we did everything that we could, but some things we simply can't influence. And other parties might say, well, naturally you should have done more or you should have been more proactive. Yeah, that's right. And that's where in, in the Shell case uh, that we're discussing, the judge really looked to the normative standards again, because the OECD guidelines, for example, and the UN guiding principles are in fact quite detailed. Uh, and there, there are some elaborations, there, there are the guidelines, let's say the, the normative standards, the law themselves. And then these international bodies, OECD and UN, have developed quite detailed guidances for how to interpret the reasonableness, which steps. There are some process-oriented steps. The OECD, for example, lays out six steps that companies should take to meet this requirement of due, doing due diligence or doing their, their, their fulfilling their duty of care. So the reasonableness, it is always going to be, it's, it's an open standard that's, that's acceptable or that's, that's relevant and that's for, for both hard law and soft law. Uh, but there's always going to be a little bit of this element that, a, that a, a company in first case itself is going to need, need to make a judgment about what's reasonable for me, for us in this case, And then if that does lead to an impact or if, if, a, if a stakeholder, an NGO or a union or the public 
finds that 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 the means were not sufficient really to address the the impact at hand they can file a complaint and then the judge or the regulator will have to evaluate that himself or herself and so there will always be a little bit of a gray area or some wiggle room and and i think this very needs very nicely into the the objectives and the, the requirements of companies because as you said they're they're quite detailed and they're outlined and i i think what is interesting about this this lawsuit it speaks to perhaps further requirements for businesses to take certain aspects into consideration. So it shows that financial objectives from companies cannot prevail over the obligation to, for example, respect human rights. You spoke about it in, for example, the the child labor. But do you think that we'll see big businesses becoming more social businesses? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And one thing that I thought was particularly brilliant in the in the statement by the judge, the verdict in this case was that she said, what we are very clearly saying with this judgment is that the company's financial objectives may not prevail over some of these other larger social standards and norms, human rights and the environment. And that that has has really obviously, you know, going back to the Milton Friedman and the business of business is business back in the United States in in the 50s and 60s. And that sort of narrative, that paradigm is really shifting now. It is no longer acceptable to say businesses only have the objective of generating return on interest or return on investment for their shareholders. They have other obligations with regard to human rights and climate and the environment. I don't think that businesses will do this by themselves. I think most businesses are going to continue to be focused on profit maximization. And and they are going to be continuing to focus on within the framework, the legal framework, the normative framework that is provided to them by legislators, lawmakers, governments, and, and society, I guess, they will always search for the maximum profit within that framework. There are some social businesses out there, obviously, that really have you know, these dual, dual objectives and dual goals. They are, in general, the smaller ones and sort of more like pilots and clearly have, have separate objectives. And I think that most big businesses will you know, continue to push as, as far as they can on the profit side. So it's really up to it's up to the regulators and up to uh, the lawmakers to, to make sure that the framework, the legal framework within which the businesses operate is clear. Please. We can just move on a little, but it's in the same, we're, we're still in the same ballpark here because we want to talk also a little bit about this notion of a global minimum tax. Uh, this has been raised quite recently by the G7 countries. I think also um, Joe Biden has spearheaded that quite prominently. Now, according to the OECD, countries around the world lose out on an estimated $100 billion per year in tax revenue because of these profit-shifting maneuvers. Some critics say that a global minimum tax could be helpful for leveling the playing field. Others have said, though, that it could hinder cross-border investments and it could slow foreign direct investment globally. Now, if we look at a country like the Netherlands or like Ireland, for example, some might see them as tax havens. Others might say that they are investment hubs. So uh, our question for you, Joseph, is how will a global minimum tax affect a country like the Netherlands? And how do we find a compromise between 
these two quite different ways of of seeing this this problem. Yeah, that's a that's a very good and, and very complex question, of course, too. And I guess I would first say that this idea that the global minimum tax would hinder cross-border investments, I don't really see how that that would happen because it, it's exactly it doing that is creating sort of a level, a level playing field with the idea to actually incentivize more cross-border investments on a more equal, let's say, or, or equally distributed rate around the world. What you have now is really an, an unlevel playing field because some countries have you know, a, a much higher uh, minimum tax rate for corporations and, and others like the Netherlands and, and the tax havens, a much lower rate. You get sort of a a really perverse effect where between certain countries, you're really minimizing the cross-border investment because the investment is not going between those two countries anymore, but it's all coming through countries like the Netherlands and Luxembourg before then going back out. So I don't think it would, I I don't see how it would necessarily hinder real cross-border investment. Um, what I do think, and th- there was an interesting report by the IMF recently about phantom investments, so the rise of phantom investments, phantom FDI, where I think a global minimum tax rate would have an impact on that. And what that is, these, these phantom investments is basically just sort of money flows that are flying around the world and, and being calculated being in the statistics for FDI even though they're not really being put to any actual purpose uh, to, to come, yeah, to, to build a factory or to invest in. It's just, mm-hmm. it's, it's all sort of on the books for the phantom investments, uh, which is all being done, of course, in order to, to evade taxes, reduce their tax burdens. And so I do think that you would see a, a quite a significant effect on that. So maybe if you're just looking at the, you know, the, the total FDI statistics or investment statistics, you would probably see a pretty significant drop in, in that sort. But that's, those are not the kind of flows that you, you, know, you want anyway, because they are not, they're not generating anything for, for society. I do think there's an issue, though. Well, I also saw somewhere that the African Tax Administration Forum, for example, they've argued for a tiered approach to corporate taxation for smaller countries, allowing for these different tax liability thresholds, which would help, I think, small economies. I mean, the Netherlands is a small economy, although it's obviously a very wealthy country. But I think we can see that there there will be some potential fallout from, from something like that. So maybe it is a case of, as they say, God is in the details. It's going to be a case of how well can they structure this uh, this minimum corporate tax. That's right. Yeah. And I think I think there's definitely something to that. And I think that you know, if, you, if you look at what the OECD has proposed, they, they've got this the BETS project. It's called Base Erosion and Profit Shifting. And, and one of the one of the pillars of that project is this try to, to harmonize the global minimum tax rates just to get more of a level playing field. But the other pillar of that is also very important. And that is really looking at making sure that the, the taxes and the revenues, the profits generated by certain industrial activities or economic activities really stay with the country. That's, that's the, the base, avoiding this base erosion. So keeping the tax there where the, the activity is taking place 
perhaps more focused on, and that's going to be big in the future, the technology sector and some of these giant companies like Facebook and Apple and Amazon, they don't really themselves obviously have much sort of industrial presence generating uh, activity in, in one country. They exist in the cloud. They don't have a particular, you know, a heavy industrial presence anywhere. Obviously, they are, you know, some of the richest companies in the world. Those are the companies that you would need to have, or you could argue the proponents argue that you need to have this low minimum tax rate to, to approach. I, I think rounding up, I think one of the key questions that is still on our minds is that bringing it back to the individual citizens, where, where does that leave us? So will we see more of these sort of spearheaded uh, civil activist groups against large corporations or, or maybe even what could we as, as concerned citizens do? Yeah, I think that's the key for going forward is to, well, I, I'm all, all, always hesitant about putting, putting too much of the burden on the consumers and on, let's say, individual citizens, because I, I think that there are, again, there are certain uh, rules of the game that that the, that governments are really responsible for um, for for setting and making sure that corporations operate within that certain framework. And once once you have it, there is certainly uh, a big role for for individuals. Then you saw that with the Shell case that was uh, led by some civil society organizations, which is of course also sort of in, just engaged citizens. But they are professional civil society organizations. But the case was also signed on to, supported by, you know, a, uh, several thousand Dutch individual Dutch citizens. So I think that you know that type of of cases, that sort of collective action type cases, are going to be increasing in the in the years ahead. Especially if you if we have this supply chain laws, which are which are coming up, you really will see possibilities for individual citizens to to get involved in cases like this and uh, those those normative standards that we started out with the OECD guidelines and the UN guiding principles which are soft law being translated into hard law they are very clear too that ind individuals can file complaints against companies can raise these types of issues with companies uh, it doesn't have to be you know, uh, you don't have to be a lawyer, you don't have to be a, a professional organization, individual citizens or individual groups of citizens acting together really can have a role here and have an impact. And so I do think, I think that we're going to be, yeah, seeing more of these going forward. I think in that sense, it's all of our responsibility to be informed as individual citizens, because it does seem to me like the landscape is changing quite quickly and quite significantly. Definitely. This is a very exciting field. I, I think, I mean, I've seen, I've been in this field for, <clears throat> I was saying seven, about 17 years, and I've seen things are moving more quickly now in the last just two or three years on this front than they have in the 15 years before that. Um, so I think it's a really exciting uh, area to to be uh, thinking in and, and indeed for, for people to be considering not only their own responsibility in terms of consumption, um, but really what, what other options they have. I am conscious of time and I'm, I'm worried that time always flies when we're having these these fascinating conversations and I'm, I'm sure there's... When we're having fun. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I'm, I'm sure that there's much more that we could talk about and that there's... For now, I just want to say thank you so much for, for joining us today and for uh, sharing your viewpoints. 
Thanks to both of you too for for uh, highlighting this topic and for spending some time on it on the yeah. air. Thank you, thank you, Joseph. Absolutely, and and for our listeners, uh, you can find out more information on this topic also on uh, the website at uh, www.somo.nl. As always, you can find this episode and all of our previous ones on Anchor, Spotify, Facebook and Instagram. Remember, too, that you can watch the full unedited interview on our YouTube channel called Stalk Talks. Please feel free to reach out to us with comments and questions. We love to hear from our listeners. Stalk Talks will be taking a break over the summer. And we hope to rejoin you again in September with more in-depth discussions and interviews right here from the City of Peace and Justice.